This is the Living Fearless Today podcast, a show that helps men like you and me who are struggling to get unstuck and overcome fear to live confidently and courageously. I'm your host and transformation coach, Mike Forrester, helping you create the change you want now. Join me as I interview men who've conquered their challenges and soared to success as they spill their secrets on how they live fearless today. Well, hello and welcome back, my friend. And this week, I'm joined by Freddie Bennett. Now, Freddie started out totally stressed, um, just kind of going against the grind, not really fitting into corporate, the corporate executive position that he was in, going, this isn't really me, but trying to persevere, right? So many of us are in that place. Um, puts us to where we're either in our head, really frustrated. We're looking for ways to cope and medicate with it. Man, you're going to see Freddie went from that to today where he's running ultra marathons. He's run across the Sahara Desert. And now he's taking the, the contrast of that and getting ready to run through the Arctic. I mean, like, I'm like, Freddie, let's, let's go. So, um, really excited to jump in here. Freddie's an amazing storyteller. And so I think you're going to get an idea of where he came from. And how he made that decision that so many of us were at that crossroad. Do we want to change or do we want to continue on? And so I'm looking forward to the encouragement and the insights and, and the stories that, that Freddie's going to share. Freddie, how are you doing today, my friend? Mike, thank you. I'm doing really well. I'm, uh, I'm very excited and honored to be here with you today. Absolutely. My pleasure, my friend. Well, Freddie, let's let's jump in and start talking about what does it look like today for you on the professional side of life? Perfect. And things look a lot differently than the, how they used to look. That's for sure. And I'm sure we will come to that. But today you could best describe me as, as a change maker. So I run a business called the Conquer Group. We give people the knowledge, the mindset and the habits to change their life. So we give people the ingredients to change. And then we also empower them to make that change happen. And that's what I'm on a mission to do. I'm on a mission to help 1 million people do the things they thought they couldn't do. Because I've been there. I've been that person who was stressed, confused. I knew I had a purpose. I knew I had an ambition ambition somewhere inside me, but I didn't know how to direct. I didn't know how to let it out. So that's what we help do. Again, we give people the ingredients the power to get out of their own way and to live a life of regret because we could live a life without regret. And we, uh, also because we do have those regrets stacked up, it's about removing them, giving people the blueprint to change. That's what I do. That's what I'm here for. And that's what I'm so passionate about because I know that if I can be where I was and go on and do what I've done, as you've described, then, um, then anyone can be the change that they want to see in their lives. Anyone can fulfill their potential, their potential. And I'm here to prove it to the world that we could all be that person that we're supposed to be. Yeah. Doing extraordinary things when it's like, we feel like we're ordinary at best. Mm. I mean, behind you, you've got a picture of you, uh, running across, crossing the finish line, running across the Sahara desert, right? Mm. I believe. Yes. Correct. And then there's a, Dude, there's a ton of medals behind you. 
And like, we're not just talking, you ran a 5k kind of metal. These are like extreme ultra marathon, like you're really in touch and persevering through the point of, Hey, I want to quit. I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Like that is absolutely extraordinary. And it just, it encourages me that it's like, you know, what have I not dreamt big enough about? And so that would be my challenge for, for the guys listening is like, what would you dream of doing? Like Freddie's done. If, you know, it was not a limitation placed upon you. So I think it's important to to say there as well, Mike, because I always like to say this at the start of interviews. I am not a runner. I'm not even, I don't even particularly like running because I get, I was, I was, I, I talk about the old version of me, the old version, the corporate version of me who was 35 years old. I had the dad bod. I had the beer belly. I had the poor mental health. But I know where we're going to go into this in more detail. But if someone started to talk to me about these, these crazy, uh, life changing adventures, my immediate thought is always, Oh, it's okay for them. They're an athlete. They're a runner. They're there. And they live their life in Lycra and all these things. But that isn't me. I was just an everyday guy, middle manager in corporate who hated running. For me, it isn't about the running. It's not about the, the, the crazy adventures. It isn't about the mad endurance challenges. For me, it's about time. And it's about helping people to understand that we could all make the most of the time that we have uh, on this planet in our lives. For me, yes, it was the, the crazy challenges and the adventures, but I know for someone else, it could be writing the book. It could be building new habits. It could be getting a bit fitter. It could be starting a business. It could be just changing the way they, they see themselves. So this isn't about everyone has to run across the Sahara Desert. That that was just my goal, but it, anyone can take these these ingredients and this blueprint to to live that life because I, I believe it's it's never too late to become the person who we were always meant to be. And if I can help people to do that, then um, then then we're all going in the right direction. Yeah, a hundred percent agreed. And it could be as simple as like when I was at that previous version, right? Stepping in and and doing the work, getting to that point of hey, I want to be the different man. I want to be the 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 husband that my wife dreams of and the engaged father any of those things are stepping outside and and going in the direction that you and I are both looking to see men go so mm. i really appreciate you sharing about that well, let's jump over onto the the personal side of life what does that look like for you today uh, again, very different to the old life. Um, so I'm, uh, you've probably guessed by now and your, your listeners will have guessed I'm, I'm from the UK originally, but, but I currently live in, uh, in beautiful New Zealand. So I, I, I made the, the small 12,000 mile, uh, move from the UK to New Zealand in the middle of COVID as well. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here in a place, uh, called the Bay of Plenty in, uh, in the North Island of New Zealand. I can, yeah, the, the Pacific Ocean is a 45 minute run away. I can, I can run to the beach on a Saturday morning and, and watch the sunrise. And there's, there's no better way to start the day. So in many ways, uh, I could say I live in paradise now. I have my, my wife, who's a children's doctor. I've got two young boys, uh, one, one 11 going on 18 and uh, the other one eight who, uh, who is making me feel very old at the moment. Um, 
but I, I, it would be remiss of me to say that, that life is perfect. I'm living the dream and all these, these cliches that we talk about, but, but a key aspect for, for my personal life now in terms of where I live and how I live my life every day is that I stop living that life of pursuit because I always used to say, when I make the money, then I'm going to do what I want all day. When I get the career success, then I'm going to live in this place where I can watch the sunrise over the ocean. When I achieve this, this figure in my bank account, or when I achieve this age or this body type or this external success, then I'm going to go and, and live this life that I want. And it was a couple of years ago when I was saying to my wife and I, it's a, I'm not getting anywhere. We're, life just felt hard at the moment and life just felt stuck. And we were saying we're, we're so stressed. We're working so hard. We haven't got the money to show for it. Again, my, my health, even though I'd stopped drinking by that stage, my health was not in, in a great place in terms of my, my weight and my fitness. And we were like, what if we just started to live the life that we wanted to and we didn't wait for all the things? What if we stopped kicking this, this destiny can down the road and, and just grabbed it and started living it now? And we thought rather than saying, what if in a negative way, in terms of a, a what if a move went wrong? What if we didn't like it in that new place? What if it didn't work out? What if we started saying what if in a positive way? What if it was the best thing we ever did? What if the kids loved it here? What if we found a whole new lease of life in terms of our relationship and our marriage? And that was a key change for us. We thought rather than uh, delaying the life we wanted, live the life that you want to live now, be the person who you want to be now. And all of those things that we end up chasing, funnily enough, they start to come into our lives once we become the person that we were meant to be in the first place. So we're all buying ticket, airplane tickets and coming down to visit you, Freddie. More than welcome. <laughs> you should host a, host a seminar down here. You're, you're more than welcome. Um, but it, it's a beautiful place and you do kind of feel, yes. um, in a bit of a forgotten corner of the world sometimes, because I know I could, if I sort of point in this direction, I went 8,000 miles, I'd, I'd hit LA, I imagine. If I went that way, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd find uh, Sydney, Australia. But um, it's crazy because we, we always told ourselves no, and uh, like, we, we can't do this, it's too far, too difficult. But sometimes we get a glimpse of the future that is going to come our way if we don't change. And I, I saw myself and my life in the UK uh, I won't get political, but but we kind of thought maybe there are nicer places in the whole world to live right now than um, than the UK and and the political climate and everything. So we thought you know, if if we stop telling ourselves why can't it happen, the distance, mm. the money, and and the change, and the being so far away from a support network, we thought what if it was an amazing adventure? And again, this is one of the key things to myself. As I say, it isn't about running a crazy race across the Sahara Desert. It's about living a life without regret. And we started to think, are we going to get to 70 and say, oh, I would have loved to have done that. I would, oh, if only we'd done that. Uh, and it's funny, the, um, the more people you talk to when you make a move like that and you, uh, you tell your friends and your family and the people living on your street and, and people say, oh, I'd, I'd really like to do that one day, but, but I can't because of, mm. And then we start to give ourselves all of these reasons and excuses not to change our lives. So I thought, why not, why not do the difficult thing? Why not see where, where growth happens? And as we know, growth happens outside of our comfort zone. And again, I know if I can, if I can make this move, then, then anybody can, can, can live that life that they want. Yeah, absolutely. 
And it's funny you talk about 70 years old because three out of the four parents for between my wife and I, they have passed away Mm -hmm. and they did have those dreams. You know, when I get to this point, when I retire, I'll do X. And, uh, man, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, much less hitting 70 and being in the shape to do what you've dreamt. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those of think about what you want to do and take action towards it. And I absolutely 100% agree with you, Freddie. And that's where it's like, uh, let's see here in three weeks, I'm running a 5k with one of my daughters nice. and then next spring I'm doing a sprint triathlon. So it's like, am I in the shape for it? Not that I'd like to be, but like you talked about, just do it. Exactly. Do it anyways. Exactly. And you know, when, when I, when I signed up for, for the toughest race on the planet across the deadliest place on the planet, I couldn't run around my block. Uh, when I signed up for, for, for this race, it, again, the, the Marathon de Sable, which I believe is, is my very poor pronunciation of the Marathon of the Sands, 300 miles across the Sahara Desert. Like I say, I, when I say I'm not a runner, I mean I'm not a runner in terms of I took out my credit card, I booked my place on this thing, told my wife, and she burst into tears. And she said, oh, my goodness, you're going to die. What have you done? Because what have you done? Because... FYI, you can't run, Freddie. And I was like, I know I can't run. I can't run now, but I've got 18 months. And, and that's how I, again, I went from this place of surgically attached to the sofa. I was, um, I was very good at running a bar tab back in the day, but, uh, but not very good at uh, running around the block. And, um, going from there to, to the work, being on the start line in the middle of the Sahara desert, 125 degree Fahrenheit heat about to run the toughest race on the planet and, and and but it all starts whether it's a 5k whether it's the world's toughest foot race it all starts with the first step there's no yeah. there, there's no escalator there's no uh, there's no fast track lane we all have to take that first step in whatever it is we want to achieve yeah that and that first step does is often the hardest but that that first step creates the momentum for the second third and so on exactly well, Let's transition back. Um, in your childhood, it was a motivating factor that like you and I both grew up in a situation where it was like money was a struggle. Mm. And that can be one of those of, I know for me personally, I swore I would never end up in that place. Um, now you did things a little different than I did. I ended up in where I swore I wouldn't because <laughs> I didn't have, uh, I wasn't driving the same way. Let's put it that way. But those, those childhood years were a motivating factor for how you continued on. Can you kind of walk us through like how you ended up, you know, stepping into adulthood and going like, Hey, I'm going to take this action. And, um, like what your mindset was at that point in time. Absolutely. and. It was fair to say I had a chaotic upbringing. I mean, my, uh, my mom was my dad's, uh, third wife. He had two other children and we had this, this lifestyle, which kind of on paper almost sounds a bit adventurous and, uh, and glamorous where, um, yeah, my dad was a, an entrepreneur in, in inverted commas, which meant he, he, he was a creative genius. We, um, 
uh, he'd, he'd have these madcap business ideas and some of them would go really well and then he'd spend all the money. We, um, we, uh, I grew up in the UK, uh, from, from my dad's dad's and my paternal grandfather. He was involved in the horse industry and he supplied horses in the 1920s to, uh, to a group of men who are now commonly known as the Peaky Blinders. So that's the kind of circles that, that my family moved in, kind of a blurred line of, of maybe what was legal and what wasn't legal. Sometimes there was money. Sometimes there wasn't money. Um, when they had money, times were great. We'd be going out for, for dinner and my parents would be happy and the, the bottles would be opened earlier and earlier throughout the day. And then the next week, my parents would be hiding behind the couch as they sent me to open the door to the debt collectors because they knew that the debt collectors wouldn't come in if there was a kid here saying mom and dad aren't home. And as so it was a very roller coaster lifestyle and my, my parents, uh, alcoholism would get worse and worse. And again, they'd be happy one minute arguing the next minute. They'd be telling me I was wonderful one minute. And then my dad would be shouting at me, you know, look what the cat dragged in and, uh, and everything else. So it was, it was chaos. And you know, when we moved to, to the US for a while. Uh, part of my dad's creative genius in uh, the 1980s was with computers. So he started working with a guy called Steve and we moved out to the US. Um, Steve turned out to be Steve Jobs. So we, uh, we moved to, uh, to, to California and, um, needless to say, with my dad being my dad, it all went wrong. We found ourselves back in the UK with, with no money, no house and obviously no jobs. So it was, it was this chaotic life. And I remember saying to myself, yeah, some, some kids want to be a soccer player. Some kids want to be a rock star. Some kids want to be an astronaut. I wanted stability. That was the only thing I wanted. I wanted, and it, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but sometimes life isn't. I wanted the stability of coming home every night, not having to take a massive deep breath before I walked in the front door to think, is it going to be a happy day or is it going to be a sad day in the Bennett household? I wanted the regularity of, of knowing where my money was coming from. So I didn't have debt collectors at the door. That was all I wanted to, to, to create this, as I saw it, successful life where I could just quietly grow, quietly get promoted. And also, I say promoted in the professional sense, but also being accepted and being told that I was good enough and being part of a, a team or a community where people said to me, we love you. You're safe here. You're a good person and we're going to reward you for it. And because of that, and, uh, and like I say, maybe this is like a very British tearaway story. I was a studious child, a teenage, as a teenager, I wanted to do well. I wanted to get good grades because I saw my education as my escape. And it was, uh, it was totally reversed in my twenties, as we'll probably get to when I totally went off the rails. But as a teenager, um, I wanted to be a good person. I wanted. Uh, to, to coin a phrase, I wanted to be a nice guy. And uh, we know the dangers sometimes of uh, later in life. Where we, all we want to do is be a nice guy. But um, but that was me. And I got my education. I escaped my uh, my home at 18. I had to escape because my dad said to me, we've run out of money. So I'm renting out your room on Monday. So you better be finding somewhere else to live. So um, I was like, thanks, dad. That was uh, that was great. And uh, that was the kind of dad he was. His um. His 18th birthday uh, present to me was saying, um, well, son, you're, you're a man now. So I can tell you, um, he didn't use this exact phrase, but a power phrase. Um, he was having an affair with my mom's best friend. And, uh, and he thought that would be a nice, a nice time, time to tell me when I turned 18, 
And that's why I wanted to escape. So again, I, I was the first person in my family who went to college. I was the first person in my family who wanted, dare I say, a proper job. And, and I achieved it. I, I went to college. I got the grades I needed to. And then I joined the, the corporate world on a, what we called in the UK a graduate program, joining a, um, a very large, a very prestigious uh, US based management consultancy firm. And this was when I entered a whole new world that I wasn't used to. When uh, we talk about imposter syndrome, but this was imposter syndrome on steroids. Everybody talked differently. Everybody acted differently. Everybody knew how to play the corporate game, except little old me who was just blown away by the fact that they had free coffee machines. And um, so everyone else was was there you know, doing the corporate thing and the networking and the handshakes and the elevator pitch. And I was there saying, guys, the coffee's free. Can you believe this? Free coffee. And they were like, yep, that's. That's, that's what life in office is like. And I, and this is what fi- a fish out of water I felt like again, being thrust into this whole new corporate world. Um, but at that time, that was my goal. That was the person that I wanted to be. And that's the person who I told myself that I should be this, this corporate version of me. Um, but it was only once I achieved that goal, uh, that I started to, to question my life and, and really what my, my purpose was in this world. Man, yeah, being a fish out of water, we can definitely uh mm. definitely feel that one. And it's like hopefully nobody figures out that I'm not fitting in here, right? Definitely. So well as as you started getting your feet under you, like being in the corporate, you know, kind of environments, the corporate role, how did things progress from there? I mean, did you did you start learning like learning the ladder of, of, uh, of corporate life or, um, you know, was it still kind of like, oh my gosh, I don't get it. It's funny. My, um, my perspective on this has changed over the years as I look back and I get it. I know it's cool to say kind of, yeah, you know, down with corporate life and everything else and follow your dreams. I have to say that, especially for my business now, the corporate life taught me a lot taught me about uh, it, the habit of working hard, the, the habit of, of getting things done. It taught me about relationship, taught me a hell of a lot about change. Um, again, what I do now is I help people change. Back in the corporate life, I help businesses change. I've worked with the leadership teams of Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Amazon, Hewlett-Packard, Heineken, all these massive global uh, brands. I was able to, to work directly with the leaders and help the leaders and their teams change. And that's an experience I will always be thankful and grateful for because it taught me so many skills, both professionally and personally. But it's interesting because also at the start of my career, as you say, when I felt like an imposter, when you very rightly said, I was worried about getting found out. Like when, when are they going to catch on that I'm not good enough, that I'm just kind of, kind of making it up as I go along? And, uh, and everyone else just seems to be sat around the meeting table. They look so professional and they sounds like they know what they're talking about. And I'm here just trying to play catch up. Um, but very early I was, I was taken very, in, in a very polite way to one side by, um, by one of my managers and, uh, and he kind of did the, the, the hands around the face thing. And he said, we really like you, Freddie, and you could be really successful here. All you need to do to be successful here 
is just change all of this. And by saying all of this, as he, as he summed my body uh, with, with a wave of his hand, he meant everything. All you need to do uh, is just change your personality, uh, the way you think, the way you operate, and you're going to be really successful here. And the really sad thing is, at the time, I believed him. And I took it on board and I said, you know what? You're right. I, I'm, I'm going to change. I'm, I'm not a very good person the way I am. I, I'm going to try really, really hard to, to be who you want me to be. And I carried on that path, even though that was the first moment something inside me said, this isn't for you. This isn't your path. You, you have these people telling you that, that you don't particularly fit in. I knew I was relatively smart. I knew I was driven. I knew I was ambitious. I knew I could have the potential to achieve amazing things and help other people to change amazing things. And here I was being told that you could be successful here, but just, just totally change your personality. And so I said, okay, you're right. And so I started to become this different version of myself. I had to wear this metaphorical mask every day where I tried to to highlight all the good parts of myself and, 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 and play the game, as you say, and learn how to climb the ladder and then hide all the parts of myself that I thought were bad or shameful or may not be liked by people or may not be appreciated by people. So I almost started to live this, this double life of, of being the, the corporate Freddy and the real Freddy. And, uh, and as anyone who has tried to lead a double life knows, and believe me, I've led a few in my time. It's, uh, it's a difficult, stressful, anxious, scary life to live. And uh, the fear of getting found out just raises another level and another level. And there's nothing worse than feeling stuck in, in our lives, professionally or personally. And I always say, when we are feeling stuck in life, it's because we're making a false assumption. It's because we are believing something to be true when it isn't actually true. No, I felt stuck because I was, I was making the false assumption. I'm in this corporate life. If I want the nice things, if I want the cars and the watches and the holidays and the health benefits and everything else, then I can't leave this life. And that's why I felt stuck. Someone else may say I can't leave a relationship because I'll never find love anywhere else. So they feel stuck. Someone may say I can't start a business because I don't have the money. Again, that's a false assumption. So we all create these false assumptions, but that's why. I felt stuck in this life and, and that's when I, I started to, to, uh, to resort to various vices, shall we say, to, um, just try and cope with this feeling of, of self abandonment and living this life where I was almost wanting to scream. I wanted to escape. Um, but I could, I was having to stay silent. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like those, those kind of beliefs that we can't leave create like, not just in corporate America, you know, like corporate life create like mm. a golden handcuff where it's like we're getting something, but we're also suffering. We're we're giving up something of us or it could be us. And in your case, it sounds like that drive for stability, the desire for stability was stronger than, hey, this is who I know I am. This is who I know I can be um, to start sacrificing and giving away parts of yourself because i mean i've had those people where it's just like you're not enough who you are you don't fit mm -hmm. but if if you just 100 transformed 
you would fit. I would accept you and you'd be enough. It's like, but what part of me is enough? What part of me fits in? And uh, that can cause us to have turmoil and just a lack of belief in who we are and what we are. So as you, as you're going along and making these changes and sacrificing and, and, you know, removing who you are or kind of burying it, right? How did you cope with that, that change? Because like you said, it's draining. Mm. So how are you, you know, energizing yourself or, you know, coping through the situation? It's a great question. And they say that everyone has a talent in life. And uh, during those, those corporate years, I discovered that, that my talent involved drinking. And I'd always been a, uh, a fairly heavy drinker. As I said, I'd, I'd been a studious teenager. When I went to college, I really discovered alcohol and I discovered uh, literally a, a taste and a talent for it, as, as many of us do in our colleges. But when it was time to, to dare I say, settle down into corporate life, that's when I really turned it up a notch. And again, in this corporate environment, and this was kind of in the early 2000s when, when drinking was encouraged a lot more than it is today, uh, even. And when you're in this place and you're feeling nervous and, and you're feeling like an introvert, and as you say, like an imposter, all these, these challenging feelings. And then on top of it, you're feeling, uh, as you say, like you're, you're living this, this different life. All of a sudden, I had this this environment when we had Monday drinks and midweek drinks and team drinks and client drinks and Friday drinks and success drinks and failure drinks and everything, which is a free bar wherever I turn. And I remember the the first night I kind of went for it, and one or two drinks turned into three three a.m. shots of tequila, and I kind of I, I went out. I was hungover the next morning, sheepishly walked into work. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. And I saw my boss and he looked at me and I was like, Oh no, here it comes. Kind of a winced anticipation. And my boss said, Oh, there he is. There's Freddie, the superstar, fun time, Freddie. And uh, he ran over and gave me a high five and a hug. And he was like, this guy, he was so funny last night. And, um, all of a sudden I had this acceptance. I'd gone from feeling invisible to feeling seen. I'd somehow been rewarded for, for doing this. I was like, I, I, I got drunk and I made an idiot of myself and everyone's telling me how they love me now. I was like, okay. I was like, now, now I found my place. And again, I created this. I get another persona, this fun time corporate persona who was the, the person who was then organizing the drinks events and organizing the parties and. The first person to get to the bar, the first person to buy the shot, the first person to be in the nightclub, the first person to be thrown out of the nightclub, the first person to be in, in other establishments that he definitely shouldn't have been in. And, and again, I, for a while, again, the, the, the Hollywood version of the story is it was as an immediate disaster. For a while, it worked. It got me the relationship. It got me uh, recognized. It got me seen and known as a as a team player, as a guy who was fun to have around the office. I didn't realize at the time that the career success was more than that. Career success was more than being the the fun guy to have around. I was like, I'm not an office mascot, but that's how I was pretending to 
to be. And um, the, the the hangovers started to get worse. And and this is when the, the, the scale started to tip. You know, the, the nights got later, the drinks got stronger, the meals got larger, the waistlines got tighter. The, as I said, the hangovers got got even worse. The, the the arrival time at the office started to get later and later, and then I'd I'd miss my first day of work because I was hungover, and then I'd miss the first flight. And these warning signs would start to appear. I had the uh, the couple of unfortunate examples when I was the, the the company hired a whole nice hotel for a big corporate event, a big conference. Um, I I got myself drunkenly locked out of my bedroom without my glasses or contact lenses at three o'clock in the morning. Um, so I was kind of like stumbling around the hallway, trying to find my way to reception, thinking, oh, I hope I couldn't see people in the distance. I couldn't work out who they were, but I hope, hope that's not like the company president have to find my way to reception to get a new ho- uh, hotel room key. Uh, the only problem was I was also naked at the time, uh, which, uh, which makes it a bit worse from a work point of view. And then anyone, I say any ex drinker who knows the, the hungover anxiety that uh, arrives the, the next day, but having these these stories laid on top of it, um, I say that the warning signs, and then I found myself having the team drinks, but then taking myself off on my own for another couple of drinks at the end of the night. I'd start to create the the fixed the, the fictitious friend who was having a birthday party that I had to go to, um, and then that's why I would be extra hungover the next day because I had I, I had my friend's birthday party. Um, but there was no friend. There was no birthday party. It was me, uh, in, in some city around the world, just drinking on my own. And looking back, I know that I was drinking on my own because I was extremely sad. It's because I didn't like who I was. I didn't like who I was becoming. But it's funny with, uh, with changing our lives, especially with, with alcohol or with any vice, we will blame anything except that vice and ourselves. So I would, I actually wrote a list of all the, of all the problems. And I was blaming my clients and my boss and corporate America and the stress and the economy and all these things and my family and my life and my dad, all these problems I had in my life, all these stresses I had in my life, except one thing was missing from that list of problems. And that was me. That's who should have been the top of the list because it all started with me and my vices and my bad habits. But I wasn't willing to look at that because I was so busy blaming the world for the position that I put myself in. Yeah, well, I mean, if you get to that point, Freddie, where you're like, hey, I'm going to change. You've been trained by being fun time Freddie Mm. and being accepted and even elevated, right? In your role, hey, I... I'm one of the guys, I'm part of the team. If you change and you decide to quit drinking, you run the risk of now not being part of that inner circle being accepted. Mm. So what was it that had enough, you reached enough pain to then decide, hey, yeah, I'm going to to take the risk and I'm going to stop being this and playing two different uh, personalities, two different sides. What got you to, to, to make that change and, and stick with it? It's a great question. And that's the, the, the funny thing with, with changing our habits, because we, 
we all try to change. We all say we're going to change. We all make promises to ourselves that we break the promises. And this is what I did every, every January 1st, every Sunday, every Monday, I was like, this is it. I'm going to change. And my friends at that time would be like, okay, of course, of course you will, Freddie. We'll see you in the bar at 5 p.m. And, uh, as I say, despite the warning signs by this stage were getting really bad. I had you know, one instant when, uh, when a drug dealer held a, a loaded gun to my head and, and pulled a trigger. I was, I was missing flights. I was blackout drunk in, uh, in a country where, where alcohol is illegal. And still then I was like, there's, it's definitely not my drinking. Definitely not me. Um, but it was actually my dad who, uh, who helped me to change and, uh, that's the inspirational part of the story. The, the not so inspirational part of the story is, um, is that he had to die to, uh, to, to show me the, the right way of changing. And the, the way it happened was, was very sudden. And I was at work at my clients doing the, uh, doing the, the hungover corporate worker impression where I was slumped in my chair, absolutely tappy at my keyboard with one hungover hand waiting for the clock to turn to home time. And the phone rang. And, uh, and it was someone saying, look, your, your dad's in hospital. You need to see him. So I, I walked out of the office with just my suit, my laptop bag, jumped in the car, drove 300 miles and, uh, and I found my father in hospital. And to, to cut a long and painful story short, it was one of those days that we, we see on TV shows, but we never think will happen to us where at lunchtime, I was having a normal hungover lunchtime on a Thursday. By 6 p.m. that night, I kissed my dad on the forehead and I watched him die. And the, the truth is that that should have been the wake up call that, that made me change my, uh, my drinking habits and my life forever. But there's a, a deeper truth that actually I gave myself permission for six months afterwards or thereabouts to drink harder, party more, to, to be even more reckless because I said to myself, Hey, you know, like you only live once, right? Life short, right? And no regrets, right? So yes, I will have that fifth tequila shot. Yes, I will go to Las Vegas for a weekend from London. Why not? Because life's for living. Um, and it was then six months after that when, when his death really hit me, when it really sunk in that, that I woke up one morning in a gray hotel room on a gray and rainy British morning in this gray hotel next to this gray highway. And I kind of staggered to the bathroom, kicking empty cans and empty miniature bottles of, of, of vodka out of the way. And I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror in that harsh hotel bathroom mirror light. And I was 35 by this stage. And I, I saw this person who I didn't recognize. I saw the, 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 the beer belly spilling over my, my gray underwear. I saw the, the, the yellow chipped nicotine stained teeth. I saw the, the red bloodshot eyes, the, the wrinkles all over my face, the gray hairs. And I just thought this was not supposed to be how my life was going to go. This was not, this is not the life that I imagined as a child. This is not the, the life I vision, I envisioned for myself. And I thought back to my dad and he, the day that he died, he did not know that that day was to be his last. When he woke up that morning, he didn't know that was going to be the day that he died. And I thought, and I still think now today, there would have been a moment that afternoon when he thought, again, I'll paraphrase, when he thought, oh dear, um, my time is up. And I always wonder what, what would have gone through his head 
I still think now, what regrets would he have had? Literally, when you realize that this is your last day in this life, what what would he have been regretting? What would he have been wondering? Oh, if only I'd done that, if only I'd followed my dreams, if only I'd achieved my goals, if only I'd been the person that I knew I could have been. How much regret must he have had in his life? And it was almost a premonition. And I know at that stage, I was very sad and very angry, both at my dad for, for rather selfishly dying on me, um, and also at myself for, for not living the life that I wanted to live. And I just thought, this is, this is one of those moments. And, and I say to myself, if you want the things you've never had before, you must do the things you've never done before. And I said, if I want not the material things, if I want the self-confidence, the happiness, the control, the self-belief, if I want the the body that, that I can actually enjoy looking at in the mirror and not have to kind of not look at the mirror after the shower when I'm walking past it, if I want all of those things, if I want my, my wife to love me and respect me, if I want my kids to say, my dad is my hero, if I want all those things that I've never had before, I need to do something I've never done before. And for me, that was to stop drinking, to get some self-respect, to get some self-discipline, and to keep doing it every single day. And it was that moment when I decided that I can change my life. I'd failed changed my life a thousand times up until that moment. I tried and I failed. I tried and I failed. But I always say to myself, you only need to get it right once. If you can get it right once, then you win. Then everything changes forever. And I managed that time, I have to say, after all those thousands of spectacular failures to get it right once. And, and I still just try and get it right now every single day. Hmm. So you started out the journey focused and desiring stability. Hmm. Where did stability end up when you decided to make that, that change? Cause it sounded like it was self-worth, self-determination, like it's other things that you're after. Did stability kind of go by the wayside or was it still there part of the mix? It's, it's a really interesting question because I still crave that stability in a way I still do. Um, but it's funny when when you change your habits again. For, for me, it was was alcohol, and then it was I know for somebody else, for me as well. It, it could be food, it could be sugar, it could be exercise. When we start to become who we've always wanted to be, then we do start to question our lives, our relationships, our careers, our purpose. All these things that we used to say we were very confused about, we then start to question. And I I found myself to be honest with you, for, for quite a long time, even after I'd quit the drinking for a while, even after I'd, I'd got on this, this journey and, and done things like crossing the Sahara Desert, I was very clear on my purpose, on, on what I wanted to, to achieve and how I wanted to help people. But there was still a big part of me that, that wanted that stability, that corporate safety net, that, that regular paycheck. And I almost felt like a fraud uh, for for a long time. It's like like with uh, and I know some of your your guests in the past talked about mental health and the and the, the importance of asking for help. And I've I've been on that journey as well. And I was like, okay, I've I've asked for help. I've changed my habits. I've done the work. I've done everything that they say that you are supposed to do. And I was like, hang on, but but I still I feel better but I don't feel fixed. I don't feel complete. And I think so many times 
People shy away from talking about that. They just say, change your habits, achieve your goals, get the therapy, fix your mindset, do this, and then you get Y result. And I was there saying, hang on, I'm, I was kind of like looking upstairs to say, I thought we had a deal up here. You know, I, I've, I've done the right things. You know, I've, I've, I've quit the drinking. I've quit the vices. I've got the healthy habits, but I still don't feel great. I still feel that something is missing from my life. I still feel like I'm not fulfilling my potential. And that's when I truly had to, to embrace this, this radical self acceptance of, of who I am and what I wanted to, to be and what I wanted to achieve in my life and who I wanted to become. And, and, and I, this kind of part of my, my personal crusades that I think we all have to embrace our true nature and, and direct it in the right way. Um, I, I tried to hide my true nature in the corporate world. Then when I, I quit my vices, I changed my habits. In a way, I tried to hide my true nature again. I, I tried to be the person who I wasn't. I tried to be a very calm, very quiet person who was very grateful for everything in their life. And I am that person. But at the same time, as I say, I know it's in our makeup, especially for men, especially for men who like a drink. We do have that kind of, that slightly chaotic nature, that, that chaotic, um, all or nothing, don't have an off switch. We're either all in or we're not in at all. That, that part of us. And for so long, I told myself that was bad. I was there kind of, I was trying to become an optimizer and I was trying to fiddle with my sleep apps and, and measure out my pasta every day and do all these things to think, you know, maybe I should buy an ice bath because everyone says I should buy an ice bath these days. And, um, I was like, that, that's not who I am. I'm this person who, who likes to, to kind of hit the gas pedal in life. I like to, to embrace uh, a powerful way of living. I like to embrace true feelings, true emotions. This, this all or nothing part of us, I believe that many people who have, who have struggled with vices has within them. Just because we change our vices doesn't mean we have to change who we are. And I think for, for a lot of us, when I talk about rad radical self-acceptance, it's actually about seeing, uh, our true nature and seeing ourselves. And there's one, there's one activity I run with, with my clients around this. I'll say it very quickly. It's called, it's called beach ball confidence. And if you imagine a beach ball floating on the ocean, if I asked you to write on top of the beach ball, all the things that you love about yourself that you want the world to see. So we think we, I'd say things like you know, relatively funny, uh, quite a good storyteller, quite good at running, quite adventurous, all these things that I would like you to see, all these things I would like your listeners to, to see in here and, and the world to see. But then underneath the beach ball, we write all the things that we don't want the world to see that we want to, to hide from the world. So again, I would write things like, um, very poor timekeeping, can be grumpy, can be self-centered, can be described as selfish. All these things that, uh, again, we all have this, this good side and the, and the bad side, the light side and the dark side. What we try and do when we change our lives is we try and push that beach ball down. And again, if you've tried to push down a beach ball in the ocean, we try and hide that underside. And it takes a lot of energy and a lot of focus to keep that beach ball pushed under the water. And especially where life throws us something as life tends to do life says here catch this catch this problem or this new challenge or this something else that's happened in your life and we have to catch it and then the beach ball starts to pop up and we go oh whoa, i need to push that down 
and I was still living my life this way. And I still believe that when many of us try to, to coin a phrase, go on a journey or change our lives, we still try and hide that part of us. And it was only when I said, you know what? I don't drink anymore. Yes, I am a Guinness World Record holder. Yes, I have run across the Sahara Desert. But the deepest work I had to do was still radically uh, accepting who I was and my true nature. And I believe it's only when we do that that we can truly lead into who we are and uh, live those lives of, of true purpose and fulfillment. One last question before we wrap up here, if that's cool, Freddie. So many of us, you talked about wearing a mask. We'll wear not just one, but we'll wear many masks mm -hmm. to the point where we can lose the identity of who we are. So if that's the case, how would you bring somebody back to that radical, you know, kind of place where they see who they are? How do you remove the masks to reveal the true identity? It's a great question, Mike. And I think it's, it's in many ways the most powerful and the most important question that we can ask ourselves because we, we cannot outperform our own self image. And, uh, and that, that's one thing that, that I learned to get after many failures that I, I look back now. That's why I wasn't performing how I could perform it in the corporate world, how I knew I was capable of performing because I had this poor self-image. I was wearing the mask. That's how even after I, I got the therapy, quit the vices, changed my habits, I still wasn't living that life I wanted because I still didn't see myself. I was still wearing the mask. So how do we do it? And, and this is uh, much of what we do on, uh, on my Conquer program. The first thing to do is to change how we see ourselves. It's about removing uh, our identities from our roles. And that, that's a key area because we, we usually identify ourselves by our roles in life. So if I was to ask you who you are, if I was to ask anyone, who are you? And we say things like, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vice president. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a golfer. I'm a BMW driver, but those are all roles. If I was to, to, to put you on a desert island naked, that's that's really who you are in terms of your identity. That's how you truly see yourself. And that's why the reason why so many people, again, in, we see this in the corporate world, in the sporting world, uh, anyone whose identity is tied up in their role, and then if they lose that role, they're totally lost, like a, like a boxer who retires. That's when they usually go into that, that life of vice, like someone uh, who is devoted to their career and they get fired. That's when they, they lose it. People who retire as well is another key one. That's why so many people retire and then feel lost in life because their identity and their role are intertwined. So the first thing we do is we change how you see yourself. The next thing is about removing all the regret, all the guilt, all the shame that we carry amongst ourselves. And this was a really powerful thing for, for me to develop. I knew we had to develop things this way because Oh my goodness. If I hear one more 12 week transformation program, three month, uh, this change your life in five steps that people are always trying to pile more knowledge upon us, more information. Use my program, use my blueprint, use this, use that. And I believe that we already have the knowledge inside us. We already have the pathways inside us. What we need to do is get out of our own way. Um, and, and that's why I say it's about removing, not about adding. 
And if you were to think of, um, think of a sculptor, think of, of Michelangelo and the statue David, classic masterpiece. To create a masterpiece, we don't pile blocks of marble on top of each other. We don't think, oh, we need to add more. We need to add more on top of it. To create a masterpiece, we need to chisel away 80% of what is there and what remains after we've removed everything. That is the true masterpiece. So that's why we focus on removal. Then it's about destroying the limiting beliefs that we all hold about ourselves and putting in brand new daily habits. And uh, I think this is so important because we, so much of how we live our lives and what we can achieve in our lives is, is around confidence and, and, and confidence is, um, is illusory. It's like happiness. Illusory means the more we chase something, the further it moves away from us. So rather than saying, I will be confident when I get the body or the money or the job or the fulfillment, or I live in this beautiful place on the other side of the world. It's about creating confidence now. Confidence happens after the action, not before the action. So how do we create confidence? The, the word confidence uh, derives from Latin, which was then translated to the French. It, um, it's, uh, it's confidere. Uh, con means intense. Fidere means trust. Confidence comes from intense trust of ourselves. How do we trust ourselves? Well, we keep the promises that we make to ourselves. We keep the promises we make to ourselves by doing what we say we're going to do. And that's why the daily habits are so important. We start keeping the promises we make to ourselves every day. Then we do things, I say, around we, we fix people's diets, we get them fit, we remove their vices. So this isn't about, as I say, giving people a, a, a program. It isn't about saying, this is a diet, this is a, a process. This is about a whole new way of living. It's about rewiring people's brains so they think differently. And that's what gives them the knowledge, the mindsets, and the habits to be the person that they were always meant to be. Hmm. Super power. Super powerful, Freddie. Well, hey, as we end up here, um, how can men connect with you outside of the podcast? Perfect. The, the easiest way to, to get in touch with me is, uh, is on Instagram. Because I do have a, a website as well, but I tend to, to run a lot of things through my Instagram, which is at the Freddie Bennett, which is T-H-E, Freddie, F-R-E-D-D-I-E, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, at the Freddie Bennett. I'm always happy to connect with people on Instagram. Um, I, I believe service is the way forward. I just want to, to serve people. And the, the more I can help people and to serve people, then, um, then I think all of us, all of us together, especially men, uh, it's tough for us at the moment. And, uh, I think we, we all, we are all on the same team. So the more we can do to help each other succeed, then um, the better it's going to be for each other and, and for humanity as a whole. Absolutely. Freddie, thank you, my friend. I appreciate all the insights, your journey of transformation. I mean, absolutely amazing. Thank you for joining me today, my friend. Thank you, Mike. Been a pleasure. Thanks so much, my friend, for joining me on another episode. If you found the information within the show helpful, please leave a review on the platform you're listening to. It helps raise the show's visibility so other men can join us in breaking free. See you on the next episode. And remember to continue putting yourself out there. Have a great one.